You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. I can turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8 once again. Revelation chapter 8. As you're doing that, you'll remember last week we began to discuss the trumpet judgments um, that come out of the seal judgments. Um, We saw last week that as the earth begins to deteriorate and uh, is destroyed, um, we can take comfort in that God is working out his sovereign purposes and that God is going to use those events to defend his people and to warn his enemies. We saw um, God responding in judgment last week. We saw that he was answering Christian prayers for God's kingdom to come. And so he brings that judgment in response to our prayers, but he's ultimately doing it because of man's sin. So we see not only is he responding to man's prayers, he's responding to man's sin in bringing his judgment. We saw that he's consistent in his judgment, both in why and how he judges. We looked at some Old Testament passages last week about how God judged for idolatry and persecution. Those are two themes that we've seen running through the book of Revelation Uh, the idolatry of mankind, the persecution of God's people. And so uh, very consistently, God continues to punish for those things and judge for those things. Uh, We see how he does it consistently, too, in that uh, his judgment in the Old Testament is always tied to bitterness. We see the waters being turned to bitterness here in Revelation, similar to the Old Testament imagery of bitterness. And we even saw hail coming and cosmic upheaval uh, terms being used to describe God's judgment in the Old Testament. So a consistency we see in how God judges. He's also sovereign in his judgment and how he uses creation to bring about his judgment. But as we wrapped up last week, we saw how he's merciful in his judgment. That while he judges a third of the earth, he leaves two-thirds untouched. Um, that he continues to give opportunities for repentance. That he intensifies his warnings uh, to bring about repentance of people here on this earth. And so our application points last week were to be warned that man without God is headed straight for judgment, but also to be encouraged that God is sovereign over all of creation's upheaval. So as we see these things start to unfold, um, as we get closer and closer to the return of Jesus, we can be encouraged in knowing that God is at work, that God is in control, and that God has good purposes in store for the things that he is doing. All right, and so that brings us to our text today in Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. We begin to look at the remaining woes or the remaining trumpets. We've seen four of them so far. Um, And then the last three trumpets are tied to the three woes as well. And so you may have heard of the three woes in Revelation. We begin to look at those as well today and how they tie in with the last three trumpets. So in Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, it says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Chapter 9, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant, or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. 
They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have his king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Our summary sentence for today. As evil forces rise and advance, we can take comfort in knowing that God controls Satan's realm and will use their presence for our good and his glory. As evil forces rise and advance, we can take comfort in knowing that God controls Satan's realm and will use their presence for our good and his glory. For our kids, when we see evil rising around us, we can trust that God is still in control. I hope that as we look at a, at a passage that's, that's confusing and probably will still leave us with many question marks as we leave today, that we can walk away being encouraged knowing that God is in control of the things that we're reading about here. Um, that everything that transpires in this chapter is at God's bidding. Everything that transpires in this chapter is released by God, is controlled by God. Um, that nothing happens in this chapter separate from his purposes, that he's determined for these, th- these things to happen. He initiates these things to happen. He releases the evil so that these things can happen and will happen. Um, and he limits it in its, in its happening, right? Like he doesn't unleash something that he's unprepared to handle and all of a sudden evil is wreaking havoc on the earth and now it's a matter of trying to close it back up, right? God releases it with a very intentional purpose, Right? He limits what the evil can do, uh, limits what it can't do, limits how long it can even do it. Um, God remains in control. And so we can take comfort in knowing that as evil forces rise in advance, we can take comfort in knowing that God controls Satan's realm and will use their presence for our good and his glory. And I tack that part at the end there because that's what God always does. Right, God always does things for the good of his people and for his glory. And oftentimes those two things are working side by side, hand in hand together, right? And so even in this chapter with, with demonic uh, activity happening and torment happening, the good of God's people is accomplished and the glory of God is being accomplished in this matter as well. So we can certainly be encouraged and comforted by that as we sang this morning, even as, as devils would seek to discourage us and would seek to undo us, God remains in control and allows his people to persevere through all of this. Um, a quote that, that, I, that I came across in my studies, the devil is still God's devil, uh, something that Martin Luther said, and he also wrote the first song that we sang this morning. Um, the devil is still God's devil. So as we contemplate what the devil is capable of doing, as we read about him in scripture, um, as, we, as we see some of the terror that, that, that un, is unleashed here in Revelation, it's worth coming back to constantly, and it's something that we have to constantly remind ourselves of. If we're not careful, we'll, we'll lose sight of the fact that the devil is still God's devil, right? God created the devil. The devil is not an equal counterpart to God. He's not, an, he's not a rival of God. He doesn't possess uh, opposite attributes of God. He's a created being, right? And he's in submission to God and God's authority. And so even as we read about the horrors here in Revelation chapter 9, it's worth reminding ourselves that the devil is still God's devil. All right, some introductory notes as we get into this. First of all, the first four trumpets 
where plagues that we see that result um, kind of a natural phenomena attacking the universe where man lives. Um, so they were plagues upon the earth and, and, and man's living environment. But here, the remaining trumpets are an attack against mankind. Um, so a shift from attacking the, the world that man lives in to an actual attack on mankind. The final three trumpets are tied to these three woes, which simply uh, helps us to see there's an intensification of God's judgment on man. As we get closer to Jesus returning, the, uh, the judgments that are coming upon the earth intensify. And so we have this, this eagle flying around, uh, crying out woes upon the earth as we look to these three trumpets being blown to wrap up the trumpet judgments. And it simply helps us to see that there's an intensification of the judgments that are now going to come. And it intensifies in, simply in the sense that it moves from God's or man's living environment to actually man's body, man's, uh, man himself. All right. Um, the fifth trumpet pictures an army of demonic locust-like creatures tormenting unbelievers. That's the, that's the picture that we get here, right? These locust-like demonic creatures that, that are allowed to, to come upon the earth and, and wreak havoc on the earth and torment unbelievers. Now, you read this and immediately you probably start to ask the questions of, what is this in reference to? Like, when does this happen and what exactly is this trying to describe? Because the fact is, is that John is, is saying that it was like this, right? So he's, he's writing about something and can't fully even find the words to describe it, right? And so if you've, if you've studied Revelation before from the, the futurist standpoint, you may have heard, you've definitely heard more speculation than you would find from uh, the view that we're taking. So the futurist perspective is going to speculate a lot about passages like this and trying to take current images and trying to force those into what this may be talking about. Has anybody heard any speculation on what these locust-like creatures may be referencing? Anybody heard anything before? Um, like tanks and uh, military equipment? Yep, yep. So like tanks and helicopters with the sounds of their wings being like chariots. I mean, it's possible that John is seeing visions of... of um, contemporary culture today and seeing some of the the um the military type advancements i mean if you take john from where he was living and put him into today i don't know how he would describe tanks and helicopters he may have described it exactly like he writes here um that he sees images that that remind him as best he can of of these type of things and that's that's possible yeah um i've heard it described as like robots like terminator like okay yeah, like basically it's always in reference to like advanced technology is, is at least what I've heard. Um, I don't know that, I'm sure there are, I don't know that there's anybody that really believes what is being described here is meant to be taken literally. I mean, if you, I mean, I did it yesterday. If you just Google locust, army, uh, scorpion, revelation, I mean, it'll bring up some really weird pictures of people trying to draw and paint a literal picture of what this is. I don't know that anybody really believes this is what's going to happen, that there are going to be demons that look like locusts that also have scorpion tails that have faces like men and um, long hair like women running around tormenting unbelievers. I mean, that, that very well may be the case. I think John is giving us, I mean, to me, this is, this is as horrific as he could picture something like this being, being uh, happening on the earth. Um, I don't know that it could get any worse than this, than to have these type of monsters running around on the earth tormenting unbelievers. 
And so even if we go with the worst possible scenario, we can still filter that through everything that's clear in this passage, right? That all this stuff answers to Jesus. Jesus releases all of these things. Jesus controls all of these things. Jesus limits all of these things. And on top of that, none of these things can touch believers. Like none of these things can harm believers. Now, if it's in reference to tanks and helicopters and such, that's, that's far less horrific to me than what this would look like literally, right? So if we take the, the most extreme possible um, um, fulfillment of this, and we still can filter that through all the good things that are found in this chapter that God's in control, if, it's, if it ends up being anything less than the worst possible, inter, uh, p- possible fulfillment, then all the more God is still in control of all of those things, right? But again, <clears throat> what we're always tempted to do, it seems like, is to try to look to the future and figure out how does this, how does this picture apply to the future? And what I've been trying to challenge us to do is to look where? To the Old Testament to see a better understanding of why this language is even being used. See, the futurist perspective would say, man, let's look to the future and figure out how would John describe helicopters? How would he describe, describe tanks? And maybe he would describe a helicopter like a locust with a face of a man because he sees the pilot in the helicopter and, and he sees the wings uh, flapping around and making noise like chariots and some, unlike anything he's ever heard. Maybe he would. Or maybe John simply looked back to the Old Testament and said, God's always used this type of imagery when he talks about judging large amounts of people, right? It starts with the image of Exodus chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 10, where we actually see God bringing a plague of literal locusts onto the scene to judge the Egyptians. Exodus chapter 10. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 1, It's the eighth plague on Egypt. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. God's still setting the stage here for his name to be made great in Israel and in the surrounding nations. He says, What I'm about to do is meant for you to better understand me so that you can pass it down to the other generations. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on the earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. These plagues intensify just like the trumpet judgments and the seal judgments and the bowl judgments. God continues to intensify the pressure. He intensifies the punishment, which is oftentimes what we do as parents, right? When we're punishing our kids, when we're trying to teach our kids a lesson, we oftentimes intensify the punishment. If they fail to respond to the initial punishment, then we intensify it. It's just like, it's like in school, right? Like our policy manual at Trinity, the punishment intensifies the more a kid gets in trouble because they're obviously not responding to the initial punishment that incurs, right? So God is intensifying it here in Egypt. Says then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said. 
We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you were asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land and all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt. The Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land, all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. All right, so I think that's one background setting for what John is writing about in Revelation. He's remembering the locust judgment that God brought upon the earth, all right? But I think he's also referencing Joel chapter one. We've been in Joel a couple of times already. Turn over to Joel chapter one. If your Bible's like mine, it starts off chapter one with that little uh, subheading that says an invasion of locusts. It says the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear all the inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes. It is not the food cut off before our eyes. Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herd of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures 
of the wilderness. God's describing an invasion of an army that's like a locust swarm that comes in and devastates this land. And he, he uses imagery here, Joel does, that's very similar to what John is talking about Revelation, right? He talks about their teeth being like the teeth of lions. And we see that same wordage used here in Joel. You skip into Joel chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. It says, their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. You see that same imagery being used in in Revelation, right? So the picture that, that John is referencing isn't so much a picture in the future, I don't believe. I think he's drawing upon Old Testament imagery, and we continue to see consistency in how God judges and the language that he uses. Again, my goal is to help you see that Revelation doesn't have to be feared because of some of the confusing language, that it's consistent in how God communicates from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, all right? Um, so let's not so much focus on what this can mean in the future. Let's look to the past and see what God has been communicating in the Old Testament, how that may translate into the New Testament in Revelation. Um, I think the images here in Revelation are meant to convey horror, but not necessarily to answer specific questions. And so we're not going to come out of today knowing the when and the exactly how this looks in the future. Um, we don't have answers. And we really don't have even enough to speculate. I mean, we can we can speculate for sure. We can talk about tanks and helicopters and, and invasions of armies and, and try to conjure up a possible answer for some of these questions, but it would not be rooted in Scripture because Scripture is very silent on a lot of those questions. Instead, I want us to really focus, as we've been doing, on the things that we can know from this passage, which brings me to point number one as we go back to Revelation now. Number one, We have a responsibility to respond to the God who is gracious in judgment. And all of these points this morning will be kind of imperative points. And so respond to the God who is gracious in judgment. And again, it's a passage that you may look at first and read and, and want to talk more about why God would be justified in being uh, so wrathful in this situation to bring about such torment upon the earth. But I think there's another lens to look at it through, and that's the graciousness of God and how he brings about this judgment. First of all, in verse 13 of chapter 8, we see him warning the earth before he brings the judgment. He brings warning upon the earth before he ever judges the earth, right? He sends this eagle, which again is probably not meant to be a literal eagle crying around with a voice or flying around with a voice crying out these things, right? It's probably not going to happen that way. But what I do believe is that there is sufficient warning that precedes God's judgment. For our kids, God is a gracious God. He was a gracious God back in Exodus when he was bringing plagues upon Egypt, right? He brought plagues, but only after warning, right? Pharaoh and his people were warned about what would happen if they did not do what God was telling them to do. It was, it was never really a surprise, right? God said, if you don't do this, this is what I'm going to do. It wasn't wake up and let's see what this plague is. It was wake up and, all right, where are the frogs at? We should be expecting them today. Where are the flies at? We should be expecting them today. It, should, it shouldn't have been a shock to anybody in Egypt because it was well known what God was planning to do and the warnings that were being given. And it wasn't just Pharaoh that was getting them, right? Pharaoh's people come to him and say, why do you continue to resist this? 
right? We can't compete with this God. Our gods can't compete. I mean, the, the, the people closest to Pharaoh recognize early on in the plague situation, our gods can't compete, right? That was part of the purpose of the plagues is for, for the Egyptians to come to an understanding that their gods aren't like the God of Israel. And these guys pick up on it early. Why are we, why are we still trying to compete with their God? We can't win. Let these people go. God is gracious in his judgment. God graciously warns mankind before judging. These woes are meant to be warnings. Jesus echoes this in uh, Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 21. Verse 20 says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus is echoing these similar warnings to these cities that he had done great things in, had communicated clearly in those cities, and they had rejected his word, and they had not repented of their sin. It's the similar language used here in Revelation where these woes are being declared and judgment has not yet come, right? I think even as Jesus communicates these woes to these cities, there is still opportunity to repent. Their destiny does not have to be fulfilled in the way that Jesus is talking about. It's still tied to their lack of repentance. If they repent, then judgment day is far more bearable for them than these other places because they will have come under the repentance of God. Right, And so it's similar here in Revelation. These woes go out upon the earth. There is still opportunity to repent before these locust-type things are unleashed from the abyss. Jesus echoes the same type of warnings that come out in the book of Revelation. God graciously warns mankind before judging. We see God's grace in his judgment. He warns mankind before judging. But number two, God graciously relents from his judging as well. God graciously relents from his judging. The judgment is intense here in Revelation, but it's also short. Similar to what we see in the book of Revelation, right? We see God bringing judgment, or in the book of Exodus, we see God bringing judgment through the plagues, but God relents from that, right? He doesn't doesn't leave Egypt in this state of bloody water and rampant frogs and, and locusts that consistently eat all their crops. He takes those things away. He relents from that judgment, anticipating then repentance being made available. Even as we read in Joel, right? Joel talks about the devastation coming upon the land and what's the response that's that's called for? A, A call of repentance, a call of confession, a call of worship, a call of returning to God for who he is. And so that's real similar here in the book of Revelation in chapter nine with this fifth trumpet God brings about this judgment, this punishment, but it's for a short period of time. It says that when these creatures are unleashed, when the demons are unleashed from the bottomless pit, they are empowered to do certain things, but they're only empowered to do it for five months. They're called to torment the unbelievers, but to do so for a set period of time. The number five in Scripture is used oftentimes to mean um, a few or a little. So I think the timing, we see timing in, in um, 
Revelation a lot, right? We see how many days one of the churches would be thrown into prison. We see how many years will rule and reign with Christ uh, before the end comes. And so uh, there, there's, there's time that's, that's talked about in Revelation. But I, again, I think the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. I think they're meant to picture something bigger than just the numerical value of that number. Five months is short compared to a thousand years, right? So I think if we're looking at it symbolically, five months is not a long time, right? I think the five months may also be tied to the analogy that's going along with the locusts. Um, locusts have a lifespan that typically runs from May to September when they're above ground, right? So locusts, these plagues of locusts that would come through, they'll devastate the land, but when the weather turns cold, they're out, they're done. They don't live anymore, which I got to thinking, I was like, well then, well then how are there locusts next year, right? Like if they all seem to, seem to live from May and die in September, how do you have more locusts the following year? Well, they, they're planting their, their, their eggs and their, their babies in the ground. And so they come out of the ground when they wreak havoc on harvest and crops, and then they die out when the, when the weather gets colder. I mean, that's exactly what's being pictured here, right? These, these creatures are coming from underground to above ground, and they're doing their thing for about the same amount of time as a real locust would, right? So I think there's a lot of imagery as to, to even the, the time frame as far as how they're being described being on the earth is real similar to what a locust would be on the earth as well. And so um, it's really hard to know exactly, again, what's this talking about? How long exactly is this when this happens? And, and exactly what is the sting of the scorpion's tail? And, and how does that all play itself out? Again, we could speculate, but the speculation at best would be my opinion, and I wouldn't have really anything great to back it up on. Um, what I think we do see, again, what can we know from this? And God is gracious in his judgment. He's warning. Whatever this is and whatever this looks like in the future, God faithfully warns and prepares the earth for it. He, he's given warning signs leading up to it. Whenever this happens and whatever it looks like, God will have faithfully warned the earth prior to it coming. And when it comes, God will graciously stop it after a short period of time. He won't let it go on forever. He won't let it go on really for a long time. He will graciously relent and stop it. Man has the opportunity to repent after this type of judgment, but the hardness of the heart is what is clearly seen. In Amos uh, chapter 4, another Old Testament passage that I think helps shed some light on what's going on here in Revelation. Amos chapter 4, verse 9, I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Right, so this plague comes and the locusts are, are wreaking havoc on the crops. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. The fact that they are held accountable for not returning to him implies that the purpose of this happening was for them to return to the Lord. This was done to draw you back to me. And I did it and you did not return to me. And so you're accountable for that. I think we can take that exact same understanding, apply it to what's happening here in Revelation. God does this. God does this. He brings judgment. He brings torment. He brings pain upon unbelievers, but it's designed for them to come to him. And what we see at the end of chapter nine is they don't, right? They don't. Just like Pharaoh hardened his heart and did not return, just like the people here in Amos did not return after they were warned, after the plague comes, they don't return 
Again, Revelation 9, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. It's not because God's not gracious, right? Nobody at this time, when this happens, can claim that God has not been gracious in his judgment. He's warned, he has relented, he stopped it so that there's, again, opportunity for repentance. You can repent while it's happening, right? Remember the, the, the fiery serpents come upon Israel in, in the, um, the desert, and they're supposed to respond in repentance as they're being bit by these things, right? Look, look to the, the bronze serpent and be healed. But God graciously stops the plague so that there can be kind of a, a, a catch my breath and evaluate what is happening and what do I need to do in light of what has just happened, and there's not repentance. There's not repentance. God is gracious, though, in his judgment because he warns and he relents, giving opportunity for repentance. I think there's two things that we can clearly see from this chapter, even though we're left with a lot of questions. Second point, not only do we need to respond to the God who is gracious in judgment, we need to align ourselves with the God who has good intent. We need to align ourselves with the God who has good intent. Fifth angel blows his trumpet. I saw a star fallen from heaven. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. They're given power like scorpions. They're told not to harm the grass of the earth or anything that they would normally harm. They're told they can't harm. But only those people who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. I've said this before. We, don't, we haven't even gotten to the mark of the beast yet, and that gets so much more attention than the mark upon Christians, right? It's the seal of God that protects us here. Seal of God that protects Christians. They're allowed to torment the earth for five months, but not to kill anyone. Their torment's like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. Those days, people will seek death. They won't be able to find it. They'll long to die, but death will flee from them. For our kids, God is a good God. Satan willfully harms those who believe his lies. I want you to, I want you to think about what's happening here because hopefully you, you would read this and say, this just doesn't really make any sense. Like, Satan is allowed to unleash his demonic forces to hurt the people that follow his ways. Right? Like, that, that, why, why, why would Satan do this? Right? Like, if Satan is trying to mount an army against God, it makes no sense for him to torment the people that he's trying to claim for himself. But it's exactly what we see happening here. The demonic army attacks those who are in rebellion towards God. The demonic army army is led by one who wants to destroy that's what his name means this king of the locust people the king of the locust creatures here the name both in hebrew and in greek means destroyer it means destroyer what you have here is evil men not believers this isn't the same persecution that we've been talking about where where Satan and his forces are trying to press upon believers and quench out their faith. This is Satan and his forces hurting people that are ingrained in idolatry. It's the people that are persecuting Christians that Satan now turns his attention towards. Evil men are now suffering much at the hand of evil. One commentator said the greatest consequence of sin is to be allowed to continue in it. I mean, what this tells us is that sin leads to this destination. 
that when we choose sin and we choose rebellion against God, we choose the lies that Satan has been spreading since the Garden of Eden, we end at this, at this, at this point. We end in torment and destruction. And the one who we're believing satanic lies that, that God's not good, God's not in control, God wants to hold you back, the things that he shared with Eve that he continues to share subtly to us through our culture, that we don't need to live by God's standards, that we need to live the way that, that makes us feel good and the ways that satisfy us, it leads to this destination. And what this passage tells us is that Satan has no love for those who follow his path. He wants to kill as many, Christ, as many humans as he can. He wants to steal from them and destroy them. And if it means the people that have rejected God, he'll turn his attention there if that's all he can do. When, when, when we go to the Revelation skit at, at, at Snowbird, there's the, the, the beginning part. Martyrs are, are in this rodeo, and, and Satan, and, and I love the way that Snowbird sets it up because Satan is quoting Scripture to these people, but applying it to himself as though he is the one that wants what's best for them. Right? He's, he's crying out to them that he is the way, he is the truth, that he is the life, that he can give them the abundant life, that he can satisfy all their needs. All they have to do is say no to Jesus and worship him. And immediately, immediately after that, he wants to kill them and hang them and destroy them. It's exactly what we see in this passage here. Satan spends all of his time deceiving and leading astray human beings to to deviate from God's plan, to deviate from God's law. And as soon as he has them in his clutches, he torments them. And as we'll continue to see in Revelation chapter 9, while he's not allowed to kill them here, he is allowed to kill them later. As soon as Satan wins people to his side, he torments them and kills them. There's no love. There's no kindness. There is no hope extended to these people when they make their choice. Jesus Jesus proclaimed that at his time, right? That the thief has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. It's Jesus who offers life more abundantly. Satan willfully harms those who believe in his lies. Number two, God sovereignly protects those who follow him. It would make most sense in this passage to read about Satan unleashing these demonic forces to torment believers. That's what you would expect evil to want to do. That's what you would expect evil to be able to do if evil was accomplishing its purposes. But we learn time and time again in Scripture that evil cannot accomplish any of its purposes, only God's purposes. We studied in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. When I taught on this passage, I explained to you guys what is happening here is simply that unbelievers are being deceived and no believers are. That the greatest deception of all time deceives nobody. All it does is further convince people that we're already on a path of condemnation to stay on that path. It doesn't deceive anybody who wasn't already heading towards condemnation. 
It doesn't steal anybody back to Satan's side. There aren't any believers that walk away from the faith that were truly believers because of this deception, nor does it hang on to anybody that's name is written in the Lamb's book of life and they end up not confessing Jesus. It accomplishes zero evil purposes. It only accomplishes God's purposes. And it's the exact same thing in Revelation chapter nine. God says, unleash your forces to punish your own people. Unleash your forces to punish those that are already wandering and straying from me. I will use your evil purposes for my glory by bringing judgment upon them. But he limits it, right? He limits it. He won't let Satan and his demons torment forever. He limits it to a short period of time, giving opportunity for repentance. Number three, respond to the God who is gracious in judgment. Align yourself with the God who has good intent. Number three, trust in the God who controls the greatest evils for good purposes. Man, these three points, like, and this is going to tie in with our family worship questions. These three points need to be drilled into the heads of our kids from the time they're growing up all the way to the time they leave our house. That they need to understand that they are, they are uh, capable of serving a gracious God and that they should respond to that graciousness that God is constantly demonstrating grace in our life, why would we not respond to the things that he calls us to do? Why would we not align ourselves with the supreme being who has good intent for us, right? Everything else in the world is gonna tell our kids to deviate from the things they've heard growing up in church. Everything in this world is gonna tell them they shouldn't live that way. They shouldn't make those choices. These are better ways to live. These are better choices to make. And our kids need to understand to make that decision, to deviate from the God who has good intent for them and to choose the opposite leads to torment. It leads to judgment. It leads to some horrific stuff that they are not protected from. They need to be told to trust in the God who controls the greatest evils for good purposes because that's the type of God I wanna serve. That's the type of power that impresses me. It's the, it's the being that controls both the good and the bad, not just the good. I mean, you think about it, when we watch movies and, and we hear fairy tale stories, there's always a question of doubt as to who might win in the end because they're, they're always paired up as though they are equal counterparts, right? When you think about heroes of the story and evil in the story, they're always very close in their powers and it's kind of a, a coin flip as to who's gonna win. Now, most of us are conditioned now to believe that, that good always wins, right? Except when you start to get in the horror genres where horror and evil always seem to win, right? And I've shared this before. I had to get away from, from watching uh, scary movies and horror movies. It was something that appealed to me early on in life. I just had to stop because I got tired of walking away believing that evil was more powerful than good. It just messed with my mind too much because I want to come to passages like this and read about locust people and not think about movies that I've seen and think, yeah, I know it says that we can't be harmed by this, but is that really true? Like, I want to believe wholeheartedly that good always wins, that evil never wins, that light always conquers darkness. And that's what we see in this passage, that God controls the good and the evil, that he is supreme and sovereign over all of creation. Trust in the God who controls the greatest evils for good purposes. God reigns over the greatest evils that we can imagine. For our kids, God is a powerful God. God reigns over the greatest evils that we can imagine. I told you, I honestly don't expect this to be fulfilled literally. I don't expect there to come a day where some weird part of the earth 
opens up and smoke begins to flow out and demonic creatures that are pictured like this begin to walk upon the earth and sting people and torment people. It may happen though. I don't expect it to happen, but it may happen. And if it does happen, I can't imagine anything worse happening than that. So I'm thankful that John assures me that the worst possible picture I could have of something walking around on this earth doing damage to this earth, he, he pictures that here and still says God would be in control of that. If it's literally fulfilled this way, God's still in control of it. God's still the one opening the door. He's the one that has the keys to this. He's the one that releases this. He's the one that limits and controls what they are and what they aren't allowed to do. So if it's fulfilled in any less horrific ways, all the more powerful that God is over the thing. God reigns over the greatest evils that we can imagine. God controls evil. He determines when these things are allowed to come out, right? They're they're locked up. This, This picture here is they're locked up. They can't do these things until God releases them when God hands over the key for that to happen, right? The key is given to this star who falls from heaven. He's given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. It's not his key. It's not his pit, right? This stuff is given to this star. Now, um, the, uh, the language here had fallen. Uh, I think it's present perfect tense in the English language. It basically means an event that's already occurred, but its results are still present. So John doesn't actually see this star fall to the earth. It says the star had fallen from heaven to the earth. And I'm referencing that star that's fallen from heaven to earth. He's given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Most commentators believe that this is probably a reference to Satan because Jesus talks in Luke 10, 18, the idea of Satan falling from heaven to earth like a star. Okay, so there's a, there's a good chance here that we're talking about Satan being given the key to this pit to open it up and to release these creatures. The irony is this is the same pit that Satan ends up being bound in and locked up in, right? It's not his pit and it's not his key, right? He is given temporary authority to open this, but ultimately authority lies with God who puts him into this same setting and, and, and binds him for a thousand years. He determines when it's released. God determines the purposes that it accomplishes, right? Can't harm the believers, only the unbelievers. You can't harm the grass and the, and the, and the, the trees and anything like that. You can only harm the unbelievers. Neither Satan nor his evil agents can unleash the forces of hell on earth unless they are given power to do so by the resurrected Christ. God controls the evil. God empowers the evil, right? These creatures are described as having crowns on their heads, as having uh, sting in their tails. All that stuff's given to them. The language is very clear. They're given these things. They don't claim these things. They don't own these things in and of themselves. They are given these things. Any authority, any power, any scope of influence that evil has is permitted by God. The key is given, the power is given, the stings are given. God permits these things to happen. God limits the evil. Evil is restrained until God desires to use it, and it only lasts for five months. The demons are locked up, and Jesus is the one with the key. Number two, God uses and limits evil for his good purposes. The locusts are not permitted to harm what they would normally harm. They're not able to hurt those who are sealed. Remember back in Revelation 7, 3 through 4? None of this stuff can even happen until the sealing takes place, right? God's got angels holding back the forces of evil, four corners of the earth, until all of my people are sealed 
and protected. God's in control of this whole passage. The locusts are not allowed to kill. They're only allowed to torment those with hard hearts. We see the lack of repentance here because they desire death rather than Jesus. I'd rather die than repent of my sin is what the echoes are from this passage. And I don't know exactly what it's, what it's meaning here when it says um, that they, they desire death and they can't have it. Uh, I mean, John MacArthur goes really far to say that um, people that even attempt to take their own life can't, that all of their efforts are, are futile, that, that anything they try to ingest into their body loses its capability of killing them. I don't, I don't know if it, if it goes that far. I don't know if it simply means that the only option then is to take your life because you would love to die naturally and you can't die naturally. And so it leads to the only thing that you can do is to take your life. I don't know that, that it's prohibiting here the capability of taking your own life. It may, it may not, I don't know. But it definitely means that there is a desire for death at this situation. So again, as we're teaching our kids, as we're raising our kids, this path leads to a state to where you would rather die than end at this spot. It's that horrible. It's that horrific. It's that, it's that great of a torment that you cry out for death that it's so bad. God allows Christians to die, but won't allow unbelievers to die here. That's, that's ironic as well, right? That the, the, the martyrs are crying out in, in uh, the fifth seal, um, how long, O Lord, until this stops? How long until Christians stop dying? And, and God says, not, not yet. There's still more that are going to die. Here in the fifth trumpet, it's don't kill any of these unbelievers. I'm going to judge them for five months, and then I'm going to cut it off and give them a chance to repent. Again, that's, that's, that's God's grace and his judgment here. He's not killing these unbelievers. He's tormenting them. He's punishing them. He's judging them, much like we would as, as those that are disciplinarians in hopes of bringing about a, a change in behavior, a change in heart, a change in perspective. God says, don't kill them because after five months, I'm gonna relent and give them opportunity for repentance. We have a responsibility to respond to a God who's gracious, to align ourselves with a God who has good intent. If we believe the the lies of Satan, we need to understand that, that he is the father of lies and that at the end of time, he will turn his back on us and we will see him as the destroyer, right? We don't get to side with Satan and get all of the, the protection that Satan can offer us. Satan turns his back on his followers. We need, to be rem- we need to remind ourselves of that constantly on a daily basis when we're tempted to sin, to know that the one who is leading us into this temptation, the one who, who has been tempting man from the beginning, he has, he has evil intent for us. Right? He has evil intent. He extends things to us and has evil intent for us. God only has good intent. Application for us. <clears throat> Number one, remember that the path of sin leads to judgmental torment. Man, that is clear from this passage of Scripture, that it's the unbelievers who endure whatever this ends up looking like. Remember that the path of sin leads to judgmental torment. Sin never delivers on what it promises to us. It never does. And the one who is, who is delivering those promises certainly doesn't deliver on them. The one who is, who, is, who is trying to pitch those promises to us, he does not deliver on those. He turns his back on us and will torment us. 
if we deviate down that path. Remember that the path of sin leads to judgmental torment. Number two, remember that the world of demons have no power over those of us that are sealed. Man, that ought to be really encouraging to us as well. That, that demons have no power over us that are believers. They have no power over us as believers. We see demons tormenting people in Scripture. Man, I don't see any examples in Scripture of demons indwelling and possessing believers. I just don't think that's possible. So if you, even if you hear of people, um, if you hear of people that are, are talking about demon possession and casting out of demons, and you better hope that the gospel is being presented and that person is responding in faith after that occurs because they are probably not. Again, I don't have any examples or any reason in Scripture to believe that we're having to cast demons out of believers. They just don't have power over us. As, as scary as this culture would like for us to believe evil can be, it has no power over us because evil answers to our God. Right? As Martin Luther says, the devil is still God's devil still answers to him, still submits to him. We have nothing to fear as believers. All right, let's pray together. And then we're gonna sing and and worship God as we leave today. Father, we come to you this morning and and we thank you for this passage of scripture. We thank you that um, you've made clear to us the things that need to be made clear to us. Um, And Father, while we certainly still have questions that linger as to how this happens and what this looks like, God. We're thankful that if we just take it to the extreme and and think about this happening as literally as possible, there's such encouragement in this passage to know that you are in control of all of it. God, we're thankful that you're a gracious God, that you're slow to anger, that you extend opportunity of repentance to mankind that despite our sin and rebellion, you continue to work out your good purposes. Father, I'm thankful for the individuals that are going to come out of this situation that will repent. God, I have hope that while the majority are going to stay in their sin, that you are, you are carrying out things in such a way that, that there are still those that will be saved from this. And if not, Father, it still increases the glory that you deserve because you are a patient God and a God who extends opportunity for repentance, even if no one seizes that opportunity. We thank you this morning for being a gracious God. We thank you that your grace extended long enough for all of us to respond to the gospel. Father, we're thankful that you reveal yourself as a God with good intent and that you you show us very clearly in Scripture that that Satan has nothing but evil intent in store for those that, that yield to his, his plans and his desires and, and his temptations. Father, I pray that we would be reminded when faced with the temptations to sin, that sin leads to death, sin leads to torment, that sin does not deliver on those promises, that you are a good God and that your laws and your commands are meant for good in our life, not to hold us back, not to rob us of joy. God, I pray that we would constantly be turning our trust and faith to you, that when bad things are happening in our life, things that might would tempt us to walk away from our faith, tragedies, uh, even that we've been praying through recently as a church family. Lord, I think of this family who's lost their son tragically and could easily begin to question and wonder if you're a good God. Father, I pray that their faith would be strengthened, that our faith would be strengthened, knowing that, that you are accomplishing good in the midst of tragedy, that you're that type of God, that you have that type of power to use evil and tragedy for good purposes. Lord, I pray that 
we would never be tempted to walk away from the faith because of things happening in our life that would cause us to question your goodness. Father, help us to realize that to walk away from a God of good intent is to abandon the very thing that we want, the things that we long for, and that's to to experience good, to experience favor. So God, I pray that even in the midst of tragedy and in the midst of evil happening around us, that we would cling to you and trust in you. Praise you and thank you for who you are. Pray that these truths would would penetrate into our hearts and affect the way that we live on a daily basis. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.